0: Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm joined by Tig Savage, Managing Partner at Revolution Ventures, an early-stage fund investing in companies that are attacking multi-billion dollar categories. It's the early-stage fund that's part of Revolution, which he co-founded with Steve Case, the co-founder and former CEO of AOL. Prior to this, Tig was VP of Time Warner Ventures, and we really cover a lot in this episode. The macro trends behind the rise of direct-to-consumer products, how to evolve as a founder from seed stage and beyond, and how to keep growing as a leader in your profession. Plus, his favorite products. So this is an episode you don't want to miss. If you're running a business, you want to focus on what matters, not on figuring out your books or tax deadlines. Pilot's founders struggled through the pain themselves when building their first two startups. That's why they started Pilot, the bookkeeping and tax service they wished had existed for them. When you work with them, your dedicated account manager is aided by powerful software to make sure your books are incredibly accurate for every month. Pilot is built by startup founders for founders to make bookkeeping and tax prep seamless. As a listener of Product Hunt Radio, get 20% off your first six months of Pilot Core at pilot.com slash producthunt. Tag Savage, thank you so much for being on Product Hunt Radio today. It's so great to have you on the show, particularly because this is a very exciting time for Revolution Ventures. We've had some exciting announcements in the last couple of months. I thought it might be fun to kick off with you just telling us a bit about you, your role, and what's going on at Revolution Ventures.
1: Abanesi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it is an exciting time for Revolution. We started the firm... 15 years ago, I co founded with Steve Case. He was the founder of Revolution or the founder of AOL, and then uh, we founded Revolution together. And at that time, the idea was to, hence the name Revolution, invest in big categories where billions of dollars are being spent in an old fashioned way, but we think that exciting entrepreneurs can use technology to transform those. So we've been doing it for a long time and uh, have really divided how we do that into three pieces. We have a seed fund. Uh, an early stage, call it um, Series A fund, and a later stage growth fund. And I oversee our uh, our Series A fund that's called Revolution Ventures. And we uh, we recently raised and announced our our third fund, Revolution Ventures Three, and it's a two hundred million dollars fund. That's sort of the right size for us. We think that we're unique got a couple of dimensions, and the size matters to that. One something common among all of the Revolution companies and Revolution funds is we've built a brand and built an approach investing outside Silicon Valley. We have nothing against Silicon Valley. I've got an office in San Francisco. But the reality is the kinds of companies we back, we encourage them to look at industries and find white space where the incumbents are not competing. And that's really exactly what we did when we started Revolution 15 years ago and what we continue to do today. We're based in Washington, D.C. for no other reason than that's uh, near where AOL was. I got to know Steve because I was running a venture capital group at AOL Time Warner, um, overseeing that. And uh, I joined him to start Revolution here. And we started it in D.C., but knew that we were not going to be in the, the backyard of most of the uh, most popular tech companies at the time. So we, uh, we started going where they weren't. And uh, Revolution is now pretty well known for investing in companies outside of Silicon Valley. And uh, we've, built a, we've built a consider a leading brand in that. Revolution Ventures, the thing that uh, that I'm particularly focused on, uh, as I said, is a Series A investment fund. And one of the things that we really love about these sort of off-the-beaten-path geographies, and I think something that probably resonates with a lot of your hustle-style uh, listeners, is that many of these companies are in geographies that don't have as established uh, sort of um, financial backing and ecosystem, etc., Uh, They're companies that have often had to bootstrap themselves, find product market fit without significant sort of investment capital. They've had to to figure out a way to do it themselves. And we've really specialized in um, being the kind of investor that partners with those those kinds of entrepreneurs. And what we're proud of is we tend to stick around in the good times and the bad, which is something that uh, I think the venture community broadly has been criticized of not always doing. We can into any detail on that as you like. But that's a little bit about what we've been and Revolution Ventures and our new fund.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. There are so many things that you mentioned there. I was sort of furiously scribbling notes about what makes your work so unique. And one of the things I wanted to pick up on was this intentional strategy of focusing outside Silicon Valley. And the reason I wanted to start with that was because I've noticed over the last few dozens of interviews I've had with founders founders and investors or you know, folks who wear both of those hats, is that more and more people seem to be following on from this trend, which seems like you kind of started or at least have been doing for a while, kind of made it your intention to do, where they're realizing that outside of the you know, predictable hubs we turn to when we think of like startup and like entrepreneurship, there is a lot of really exciting talent and a lot of really great innovation happening exactly to use your words you know off the beaten path and i think it's really interesting you know to hear to hear you say that that's something that you've committed to for so long it's kind of sticking to the origins of revolution and you know revolution ventures i thought it might be kind of fun to just hear a bit more about you (laughs) and like what you're doing before you started working in this space. I always like to ask VCs that come on the show if it was a job that they imagined themselves doing when they were at college or maybe even in their first tech role. Is that the case for you?
1: Yeah, so that's an awesome question. The answer is no, but largely because I didn't even know what VC was. So my very first job was when I was 14 and I begged to get it. At, at what was then a computer store because they had such things. This was a long time ago. Um, and I, I wrote some software, some pretty basic software in, in retrospect, that helped that store build a community online. Back then, that was before there was a commercially available Internet, and that really was the genesis of my interest in tech, and I got involved in sort of the, the community around me at that time. Um, So I've always had an interest in what technology can do to bring people together uh, and build companies. But that was, you know, that was early in my life. Uh, I went to school, I came out of school uh, in a recession and uh, took a job where I had had a previous internship because I needed a job. Uh, And that was in the banking business. And yeah, I've been very fortunate in my life to have had some great mentors and for one reason or another, the chairman and CEO of that the bank sort of identified me and tapped me on the shoulder, brought me under his wing as a I was a very young guy at that point, and really taught me how business was done. There was a publicly traded company, but that the chairman of that company also owned some communications companies and media businesses, and I got exposure to those media businesses and then helped them with some investments in m and And that's where the spark really took off for me. And I knew that what I wanted to do was be in the sort of at the intersection of technology, uh, deal-making, communications. And that, that's what led to uh, my career here. And uh, I did that. I got involved in a, uh, in a fund I helped co-found early on, uh, went over to, as I mentioned, to AOL when it merged with AOL and Time Warner, Uh, and oversaw investments, not just for AOL, but HBO, Warner Brothers, uh, Time Warner Cable. And that was really an amazing opportunity. That's where I got to know Steve. And then I partnered up with uh, Steve to start Revolution, as I said, to really focus not just on the sort of traditional media and communications areas, but to use that to transform all kinds of categories. So it's been an arc. Uh, As I said, I didn't really know about it at the start, but it's been, I think, like most careers. Um, one foot in front of the other, and you just see where it takes you.
0: <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. Really cool brands that you got to work with in your time at AOL, Time Warner as well. As soon as I hear HBO, I'm just like, all oh, my favorite shows come with that channel. Um, but yeah, really cool. Another thing I thought um, you're in a unique position to speak about is, I guess, just tackling objections that one will face when they're trying to do something differently. And when I look at the product hunt community and all the different makers in it and all the different parts of the world that they're in and all the different stages in their journey they're in, all of them are going to come across some kind of barriers, some kind of obstacles. From the beginning with Revolution, it feels like you had this plan to focus, you know, quite broadly geographically and identify great entrepreneurs who are outside of the main tech hubs. I'd love to hear from you about how you sold that to like your first limited partners and, and how you continue to, to sell that narrative now. And I, I imagine there must have been times where you had some hesitation or, or doubt. And I'd love to hear any tactics you have around, you know, getting conviction from people when you are trying to do something different.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, maybe I'll be specific about revolution, then maybe uh, a broader, like most things that appear to be overnight successes, revolution was not, you know, it's been a 15 year overnight success. Um, I I know you, uh, you talked about the same thing with Alex Conrad, how the media sort of makes icons out of these, um, these stories and everybody feels like, oh my gosh, you're just on this upward path. The reality is, um, you know, I haven't been smart enough or lucky enough either to be involved with firms or invested in companies that have all been just sort of on an upward path. You know, there's ups and downs in everything. At revolution, um, this idea of investing in these off the beaten path geographies really was opportunistic. Um, as I mentioned at the open, uh, we just went where we saw opportunity and we knew we were not going to be sort of competing on the same terms as the incumbents on Sand Hill Road, which is, you know, Silicon Valley's uh, venture capital community. So we just started doing things that we thought were really interesting. And then when we looked back, that's when we realized what these companies had in common. Most of the places that we made money were not typical places. We realized why that was, and we had a strength. We had the advantage of investing uh, initially all principal capital. So we didn't raise from LPs initially. Um, It was, uh, you know, it was all, capital from the partners, primarily Steve Case's, Uh, and that gave us the opportunity to experiment and call it bootstrap in our own kind of way, um, the business. And then uh, once we identified what our product market fit was, which was taking a unique approach, being very hands-on with companies, taking a concentrated position, doing them in these off-the-beaten pathways and being their capital partners, not just their investors, really focused on business building, that's when we went out and talked to our LPs uh, we had the good fortune of um, not just having a story, but having done it because the story came out of what we did and really strong returns. And that's what motivated our first LPs to take a risk, which in any first time fund is what an LP does, right? It's like a series A or a seed round for a company. You know, it, 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 it implies risk. So that's the backstory on revolution. I think the analogies are pretty Um, straightforward for folks, you know, whether they're, you know, starting businesses or thinking about the next step in their careers or uh, trying to start their own funds, which are work on product market fit, identify what you're good at, be willing to back away from what you're bad at uh, and continue to sort of iterate over time. Don't overcapitalize yourself in the meantime until you have something that you think works and then make the decision about whether or not uh, you think it's prudent to take on the responsibility of other people's capital because that is, uh, that is not a trivial decision. Uh, you know, we, we take it seriously, and any founder should take seriously taking outside capital as well. It's um, not, every, not every one of them does, and that's short-sighted and unfair. Um, so that's, you know, that's how I think about it, how we've done things here, and I think, I think there's a lot of analogies wherever you are in your career.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. And thanks also for the reminder of the value of resilience and persevering. um, Because I know we've mentioned on previous podcasts, but I feel like it's a point that has to be made time and time again. The idea of an overnight success is very rarely the case. Um, And I love to bring that point up again and, and remind people about it over and over again, because I feel that we're always met with contradictions of this truth when we scan headlines or when we read the news or you know when we check out social media and it's very easy to then diminish one's own journey and one's own um, successes because it feels like someone always got there quicker or faster or bigger and um, so I appreciate your honesty with that um, I think that's really admirable I wanted to kind of throw the focus a bit on the specific verticals and spaces that, you know, over these 15 years, you've had a chance to dive deep into. When I think of all the different spaces that product and makers are operating in and the community are operating in, it's extremely broad. But one of the spaces that really over the last couple of years has been like heating up, uh, is this direct to consumer space. I know that you are someone that's worked with like some amazing brands like Framebridge, for example, I kind of just want to hear like one, like your take on DTC right now, and then like maybe hear a bit more specifically about like trends in this space, like maybe leaning into some of the companies in your portfolio and like observations you've made there.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I love talking about this because it's how I spend my my time. There's never be- been a better time to be a consumer, right? The opportunities and options to consume things are getting broader and broader And, you know, if, um, if my kids were to go back 30 years and see how things operated and were purchased back then, they would be astounded at the friction that's in the system. And I think the, the companies that understand ways to deliver to consumers what they want, when they want, how they want with the least amount of friction are the ones that are, are finding the most success. And the incumbents who, who don't do that are the ones that, Um, have been or will be threatened. So that's certainly the lens through which we look at um, the companies that get us excited. Um, Maybe I can give you the example, since you brought it up, of FrameBridge. So for for the listeners who don't know, FrameBridge is in the um, very unexciting category of uh, custom framing. And when I mentioned You know, when we first did this investment, so what are you, know, what are you focused on these days? I said, we just did a framing startup. You know, you can see people's eyes glaze over, but all you have to do is ask if anyone's ever custom framed anything. And, you know, invariably the answer is yes. And you say, was it a good experience? No, it was a horrible experience. I went to the framer. I was overwhelmed with decisions. I got upsold on everything. And then, you know, to make matters worse, I had to go back and pick it up. It wasn't what I wanted. It took three weeks. It was a gift. I couldn't get it done. And it cost a fortune. Well, that sounds like a pretty bad price point, and a b- pretty bad consumer experience. And if you can transform that, which is, you know, what Framebridge has done and the reason we got excited about it, uh, you can really create new consumer categories. So framing, as I mentioned, is a highly fragmented business. It's mostly mom and pops on Main Street or High Street for your, um, I guess, your, your backyard listeners or uh, dominated by a handful of craft stores at scale. And the experiences just aren't that great and the price points are high. Susan, the, the founder and CEO, she had this vision of transforming the category. I knew Susan through various iterations of her career and loved her, thought she was great. And uh, she described this opportunity. So we got involved in that company earlier than we typically would because I loved the idea and I, I trusted, trusted the founder. And her idea essentially was, we're going to take all that pain out. We're going to have a very reasonable price point, lower than the competition. And we're going to do framing the way that a modern consumer would like to do framing. So if you have an uh, an electronic image, you know a photo on your iPhone or something, you can upload it. Um, You go through 30 beautifully curated options, so it's not thousands of choices, literally. It's very clear pricing. And a few days later in the mail, a custom-made, handmade framed item shows up. If you have a piece of art that you want to frame, a physical piece, you, you can sort of scope it online, figure out what it's going to cost, identify how you want it framed. A mailer shows up in the mail the next day. You put it either in a tube or in a flat mailer, and a week later you get a framed item. Um, she's fundamentally transformed, and I think this is important as we get into this. You know, that it's hard to be me-too business, competing with incumbents. She had a new approach um, that, that was hard for the incumbents to – to attack. Because if you're, listen, if you're a mom and pop framer, God bless them, they're, they're terrific. And they, they, they're truly your craftsmen. And if you have a super high quality piece of art that you won't trust to the mail, you should go to, to these craftsmen. But it's as if you buy a shoe from a cobbler today, literally every time you go in, they make a new frame, you know, Nike figured out, an, a, you know, a better way to build shoes at scale. Um, even though you can get a totally customized shoe from Nike and they can deliver it quickly. So she built a centralized factory. We em- employ hundreds, maybe thousands of people now doing this. It's, it's in the center of the country. Um, and they're craftspeople, um, but they do it at scale. So what did I love about that business? Transformed it for consumers. Integrated technology in a way that consumers like it. Transformed the economic model. And she started doing it. And uh, and now is one of the largest framing companies that exists. So uh, that's what we like. We like attacking large categories in a specific way, leveraging technology in a way that companies have uh, an unfair advantage.
0: I love that. Well, I mean, you make it sound so simple, but <laughs> of course, um, you've been in a good position to identify these um, great entrepreneurs and these great ideas. I I kind of wanted to hear a bit more actually about what you look for when it comes to, I guess, success, like not only in the product, but maybe also like in in the founder, like particularly in those early days, because I know there will be a lot of people listening who are probably sitting on a D2C idea or like trying to come up with a viable, you know, MVP that they can use to test it. When I think of some of the companies that you've invested in, you know, things like bloomscape for example plants delivered right to your front door a lot of these d2c products that you know we love and are obsessed with very much speak to like the times in which we're living now like i don't know if a company like bloomscape and um, i've used similar products that we have here in the uk by the way i don't know if 20 years ago there would have been the demand that there is for it now. And I just guess, does that mean that for folks who are thinking about going to DTC now, let's say as a super, super early stage maker, they should be trying to think slightly ahead to where the trend would go? Or are there any like innate skills or qualities that they can double down on in the present to still eventually build a successful consumer business?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Listen, I think... If somebody has the vision, fortitude, and capital to play some long-term trend that hasn't appeared yet, God bless them. Um, But most people don't, right? You know, the companies that scale in real time are the ones that are addressing a present need. You mentioned Bloomscape, which is a Detroit-based company, great founder, Justin. And they're doing something in a unique way. And we'll, we'll, you know, I'll describe that and why we're excited about it. But buying plants is not unique. People have had plants in their house for a long time. There is a big trend among millennials of which plants is a part. Uh, Millennials are waiting longer and longer to get married. In fact, I think it was today or yesterday I read a a piece in the news about the majority of relationships for millennials are now not traditional relationships. Um, So they're waiting longer to get married, which means um, oftentimes they're waiting longer to have kids. And that has created a number of really interesting trends One of them is an area that we're really focused on. My partner, Clara, is particularly focused on sort of women's issues all related to delayed fertility, things like that. Huge category. You know, it's one of the most important things people ever do is have kids. And now the sort of the way that they have them is transformed. I think a really interesting statistic in the United States, I think it was two years ago, was the first time in history that more women in their 30s had children than women in their 20s. If you think about a macro trend, that's huge. So as people have deferred having kids or delayed it, they've substituted it. So there's been a huge sort of pet culture and people are treating their pets in ways that they historically have treated their kids. And that's why there's all kinds of large scale pet related services. And, you know, I think plants in some respect are taking the roles that pets used to have. People name their their plants and things like that. So it's definitely a big trend, but plants by, by and large, you know, by, or by themselves are, are not a new thing. Why is it then that we thought that, uh, Bloomscape was the right company to back? Obviously we thought there was a big trend. Um, plant consumption is going way up for all the reasons that I talked about. Um, uh, millennial, millennials love to Instagram it. it's got a vibe its own. You know, you can, you, you can buy more and more plants. And there's a big content around it. People are scared they're going to kill a plant. There's people can really learn as they buy, which you know people like to learn and people like to to grow, and it's an inexpensive, nice way to do it. But Justin's family has been in the horticulture business for five generations. Right, he has been he has spent his entire life in in the plant business, so they had advantages in the supply chain, and this has been a thing that he's had a vision for his entire life because the way that. You know, he envisioned selling plants, um, which is different than the way that his parents had sold them and his grandparents had sold them. So in his case, he came with uh, an advantage, not just as a reseller of plants, but as somebody who delivers supply chain. So back to the Framebridge example where she thought about using modern production techniques against the traditional category. Justin, the CEO of uh, Bloomscape, has been very focused on uh, leveraging a unique supply chain and delivering it to customers in a way That, you know, that at Lowe's or Home Depot, um, they just don't traditionally, you know, they don't traditionally buy them.
0: Thank you. Yeah. I was just like thinking about what you were saying there and how it's not always necessarily like the product itself, but rather like how it's presented to us as a consumer. That really is the hook. And I think you're absolutely right with that. Also the timing piece, exactly as you said, like you know leaning into that research that you quoted around how millennials don't have the traditional types of relationships with previous generations. We get married later, many are choosing not to get married. The things that we begin to value in our own personal lives and in our home, are other living things, and you know, you mentioned naming plants, and like totally do that in my house. Um, and I do feel like they are my pets because you know I live in an urban area and I don't actually have the space for a pet. I hope to one day, but for now, my plants are my pets. And so, I like the way you gave this more holistic overview about how all the different pieces fit together. And then, you know, you talked about the value of domain expertise coming from five generations of plant experts. Also, gives the founder this unique position to be the person to solve that problem. And I love all of that. Tag, you identified some really interesting elements that make a D2C product successful. And you also talked a lot about you know, these trends, whether it's the trends in terms of how the way we live is changing. Um, one trend that I've really identified as being big in consumer first products is personalization and personalizing the product to the consumer and the reason I brought this up is because um, you made investment in Bright Sellers, which is all about personalized wine which is like quite unusual and something that you know maybe 10 15 20 years ago people would have been like what that's not going to exist so I thought it might be fun to hear a bit more about the story about like how that came about and you know why you invested in them.
1: So, Bright Sellers, I think, is, uh, is really interesting because they are focused on moving what has now become uh, a mainstream approach online to the offline world. So, we now take for granted that companies can do A-B testing online. They can iterate quickly. Product uh, can be updated literally overnight for a new update tomorrow. Uh, the fact is, most physical products, physical goods cannot do that. So, what got us excited about uh, Bright Sellers is not that they're in the wine business. Indeed, it's that it was a venue or a platform for a couple of smart MIT guys to experiment with what they knew about online selling in an offline way. So, Bright Sellers sells a, you, you can, Uh, Be a subscriber. You can get four or six bottles of wine a month. And the wine that is selected for you is highly personalized. You originally or you initially fill out a little survey and they categorize your tastes based on that survey. And then as you review the wines, they become more and more intelligent about the kinds of wines uh, that you will like. And they are about to launch uh, a tastemaker program in which their best customers receive. A free additional bottle of wine, and that's a it's a test vintage um, that they will then use against various segments to get smarter and smarter. So, how is it that 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 is a reflection of sort of online marketing? Well, the fact is that gives four, five, six opportunities to to test with consumers uh, what their tastes and preferences are, because unlike traditional winemakers who have no relationship with uh, with their Um, ultimate buyers, the people who drink their wines because they go through distributors and merchants, et cetera, this company has a direct relationship, gets direct feedback, and then can work um, to develop wine selections that are extremely personalized to individual consumers. And as we know, like wine, there's an enormous diversity of wine types, wine tastes, vintages, approaches, what people react to. And there has not historically been a thoughtful way for traditional winemakers to understand what their consumers like. So, uh, this company uh, and its founders, who are great, these two MIT guys, Richard and Joe, identified this essentially as a category where you can do lots of testing to get to personalized recommendations. So, they didn't get into the wine business because they loved wine, they got into the wine business because they could really migrate to the physical world, things that we've seen in the online world. And it's extremely exciting. I think they have the ability to be highly transformative.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. I hadn't even thought of it from those angles. So I really appreciate the insight there. I just wonder, like, now that you have met so many incredible entrepreneurs operating in this space and seen all these products. When you think of the future of this space, what are some things that you're really excited about or more developments that you hope to see?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of what I addressed earlier. You know, it's a great time to be a consumer. Um, and the reason why is uh, consumers are getting more of what they like, how they like, and when they when they want it. So the kinds of con- companies that we like, the ones that attract our investment dollars, our time and attention, are particularly companies like that. There are so many categories that are ripe for disruption, and a lot of them sound really boring and really uninteresting until somebody makes them exciting and interesting. So that's what we encourage our entrepreneurs to focus on, what we encourage our entrepreneurs to do. The tools that new consumers and entrepreneurs take for granted can transform businesses where billions of dollars are being spent today. Right. I mean, we've talked about a handful that on the surface sound uninteresting. Plants or frames. You know, we did the same thing. We, we, um, we were the early investor in a company that became Zipcar. And when we first did that investment, people said, who invite invests in a, like a car rental business? Obviously, transportation is a huge category that's transformed, but it was the founders and entrepreneurs who had the vision to say, wait a sec. Now people have a phone in their pocket. Now the cost of, uh, of, of scaling a business is much lower and had the guts to do it. And they've really transformed those, those businesses. One that I think is really exciting, founded by a woman, uh, Jennifer Fitzgerald, is a company called Policy Genius. Like everybody eventually needs to buy life insurance, and nobody buys life insurance the same way that, they, um, that their parents did. Right, the, the model of an insurance salesman coming and sitting down at your table is so unappealing to today's generation of consumers, yet it's a category that's a big purchase and uh, highly overwhelming. This company identified a way to uh, make it easy for consumers to compare policies, be brought through the life cycle of insurance be matched if it's appropriate with uh, a product that's good for them in an unbiased way. And it's been highly embraced largely, largely by millennials. This is a woman who came out of McKinsey. Uh, she worked in the insurance practice. She tried to get life insurance companies to embrace consumers in a new way. They weren't doing it. And she finally sort of threw her hands up and with with her co-founder for McKinsey left and started a business. And it's been wildly transformative. I can guarantee you she did not think early in her career she was going to be an entrepreneur building an insurance business. But she saw an opportunity there, and she had the guts to dive into it with a little bit of experience. Um, So that's what we really encourage entrepreneurs to do, have the guts to go for it, but do it in categories where, A, they have a little bit of knowledge, but, B, mostly, um, it's just a lousy consumer value proposition today. And there's a lot of places still like that. And we're eager to back the, the ones who identify them.
0: That's amazing. Thank you so much. I really like the point you made as well around like how so many categories sound boring and interesting until someone does something exciting in them. Um, And that's so true. Like, I think of some of the products that I fell in love with over the last year or so. And, you know, Notion is totally one of those. But if you had to describe what Notion was, it would be like, oh, collaborative. documents. (laughs) And it does sound incredibly boring, but it's actually really fun. So um, I really like the way you phrase that. I think that's really helpful. Um, I know I don't have a lot of your time left and I still have so many things I want to ask you. So I'm going to start with uh, this question on leadership, uh, because leadership is something that everyone in the community is talking about all the time. People always want to be better leaders uh, or maybe um, evolve their leadership style. I think the reason why I want to ask you about this is because you're working with founders at a really interesting stage of their journey, as you said. Um, you know, Revolution Ventures of the three branches of you know Revolution is focused on early stage investments around Series A, and I just wondered, like, are there different qualities that make a leader very successful in the seed and pre-seed stage that are different? to the qualities that will make a founder a successful leader at the stage that you're now coming in so series A and you know scaling onwards
1: for sure the characteristics of the leaders of companies what is necessary of those leaders changes over time with the scale of the business absolutely it's a founder who identifies and understands that, and wants to bring in world-class talent that is most likely, I think, to succeed at all of those stages. So, at the earliest stage, seed or pre-seed or you know whatever we call it, that is, um, you know, in, in that is pure hustle. Having the guts to go out there and do it, and identify sort of a, a market, cobble together a product and get, you know, call it product market fit, and then attract a couple of early folks who are willing to ride along with them. Uh, As you graduate to sort of a level past that, call it Series A, it's not just a product market fit. It's much more of a scaling question. But it's not, you know, these businesses typically are not at the point where you just put dollars in and more dollars come out. There's a lot to be solved. And in that case, the needs of the entrepreneur are, Um, they transform to some storytelling needs to be able to get excitement because it, it, it's not just an internal focus and with your customers, perhaps you need to raise capital. Certainly you need to start identifying and attracting partners who help you scale. And I think most importantly, uh, you need to start bringing in, uh, world-class people around you and companies, you know, as they mature and get better can attract different people and oftentimes higher caliber people as they get momentum. And uh, the role of sort of entrepreneur slash player slash coach slash recruiter becomes uh, much more important. And then as companies get larger to the stage where revolution growth, our later stage fund or other later stage venture and growth investors get involved. The role at that point is Administrative capability is very important. The ability to um, run scaled organizations and what is sort of considered traditional management is more, you know, ha- has a greater role. Just because the organizations are larger, you know, there's this, this point in time you hear uh, entrepreneurs talk about where they go from having known the first name and backstories of all their employees to not being able to keep up with all of them. Well, when that happens, it's a different managerial role. And, you know, what I, what I try to do this is a, investor and companies have been through all of these stages is really, uh, encourage CEOs to get ego out of it and people into it. Um, and by that, I mean, um, one of the, I think most typical challenges for a first time founder and CEO is feeling like they have to have the answer to everything. And if they don't, that if they have investors, their heads on the chopping block, that's just not true what what they really need to do is attract and keep around them the highest quality people they can. No CEO ever left a company or lost a job because they had world-class people with them. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. So as you go through this arc from being pure hustle to running a large company, a key for uh, for founders, we found, is continue to Uh, cycle and upgrade management um, to bring in people who've had experience at those various stages, because by definition, if it's the first time you've done it, you haven't had experience there and you're not expected to, what you're expected to is to bring whatever your unique passion and focus capability, whatever it is to the equation and then compliment yourself with, with folks uh, who can help you be your best.
0: Amazing. Yeah. I love how Simple, you make it sound, or how achievable and feasible. Um, but you're right.
1: <laughs> but it's but it's really hard. I mean, you know, this is a this is a recurring issue. As I say, it's particularly with first time founders because once you've been through it, you have a little more confidence and you've seen it and done it. But it takes guts to bring in somebody who's really strong and you know better at you than something when you've been the best at everything in the business. That takes courage and confidence, and it's hard. You're right. It sounds easy, but but it's hard. It's certainly, we found that the most successful companies we've been in, though, have been run by people with that psychology and that approach.
0: Yeah. It's funny how you know you are so frank about how difficult it is. I just recently did an interview with Andrew Mason, who's just raised his Series A, um, for Descript, which is software that let, makes editing audio as easy as like editing text. And he touched exactly on this point, on the fact that historically he's sort of held a ton of the big functions, especially when it comes to like, you know, product and uh, management operations. And he now has to make difficult decisions around who to hire and who you bring in. So I feel like the challenges around finding the right talent for the right time are probably always going to be around because they're almost related to like the complexity of just being human. (laughs) But yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate that. So um, I know I don't have like a ton of time left for you, but as someone that's 15 years into their journey of working as a venture capitalist, but with tons of professional experience behind that, I just wondered, is there any like unorthodox advice or any principles that you feel have helped you accomplish your goals and your objectives at work that you might want to share with me and the listeners?
1: So those who know me realize I'm pretty straightforward and frank, and I call it like I see it. And acting that way in a company can be either positive, negative, dangerous, or undangerous. It's worked well for me, but like companies have political environments, etc., um, so my advice always is call it like you see it and don't play the game. But listen, there's people who uh, are very political and play the game and indeed have succeeded simply by dint of that capability. Um, my advice is not to be that person, to be as authentic as you can and to call it out when it's time to call it out. If you do that, you got to be awfully confident in what you're bringing to the equation, because if you're not playing the game, you better be delivering the goods. You know, that's my advice, uh, and, you know, so far, so far, it's working out. All right.
0: <laughs> I like that advice. I, I, I particularly like it because you sort of caveat the calling it out with the importance of delivering results. Like we can't just go out there complaining about everything if we're not also proving the value that we can bring. I think that's awesome. But yeah, thanks for that reminder. It's kind of a bit of a tradition on Product Hunt Radio because we are all such product fanatics to ask our guests to share some of the products that they're obsessed with or that they love right now. So it might be the apps that never leave your home screen, might be a new device you've just got, It could be anything really, but we're all product geeks, so we're always happy to hear personal recommendations from folks. Um, so type what is a product that you're really into right now?
1: Yeah. So listen, this is, you know, this is always my, my favorite part of, of your interviews. For me, the, the thing that in my life is at the greatest shortage is time. I spend a lot of time on airplanes. I spend a lot of time traveling and I have the advantage of being able to do that from just about anywhere, uh, except for board meetings. I feel a real responsibility to attend board meetings for my companies in person, Um, So those sort of anchor my life. But things that give me the flexibility then to be able to do what I do, coming and going, are really important to me. So what I think will be the holiday gift of the year just came out a couple of days ago or the new iPod Pro um, with noise cancellation. They're great. Like just if you don't have them, just go buy them, especially if you spend any time on airplanes. They work incredibly well. In, In the category of super simple, but I think everybody should own, there's an extension cord I love. It's called the Power Cube, and I must have given away a hundred of them because every time I pull it out, somebody says, Oh my God, I wish I had one of those. Literally, it's just an extension cord with a cube on the end that's beautifully designed. And each edge of the cube, how you can either plug in USBs or you can plug in plugs. They're inexpensive. You can get them on Amazon or anywhere else. And I'm telling you, like, they're beloved. You can put them in your backpack and it deals with. What always happens, you're stuck at an airport, you're stuck in a conference room, everybody's trying to plug in, it's terrific. Two more for you. Um, one, Garmin makes a device called the InReach. And it was, it's originally designed to be a button you can push if you're in an emergency and it calls SOS folks to come rescue you. And it also links into the um, satellite service and you can connect it to your iPhone and send texts even when you're at a cell phone range. So one thing I like to do is like offshore sailing. And as I said, the nice thing about my job is I can do it from anywhere, but I can't stop doing it. And I wouldn't be able to do any of this offshore sailing if I couldn't stay in touch. And this really allows you to send and receive texts, even if it's in the middle of the ocean or in the middle of the mountains. And then a last one that I think gets underappreciated and in classic Apple style will get better with various iterations is the Apple News product. So, or Apple News Plus. So, they now have a subscription business. They bought a company called Texture. They integrated that. And basically, it's a bunch of free subscriptions. Or not free. You know, a bunch of subscriptions to magazines you get for $10 a month. I read so much more stuff in so many sources that I wouldn't have read before. It is totally worth the $10 a month or whatever it is. You just learn so much more. So, there's there's a short list. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I like that though. I love the conviction with which you talked about all of them. It's funny that you mentioned Apple News as well because i I use Apple News a lot, although I try to read the news less and less because of what's happening in the political climate of the country I'm in. Um, however, uh, I did notice that they've been pushing uh the subscription, and I, a lot of the things I wanted to read, like some of the deep dive editorial pieces and other things are all behind this paywall. So I need to be less frugal and, and maybe make the jump because I'm not paying for that many new subscriptions right now, especially when I think of some of my friends who have like five or six because they're just like, I need it. I need the quality reporting. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll definitely check it out. I also like this idea of being being able to text from any remote part of the world. I'm going to Patagonia soon, and I am quite nervous about being completely offline. So I have to invest in one of those too.
1: You can, bo- you can borrow mine if you don't want to. If you're only doing one trip, you can borrow mine.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Ty, thank you so much. So for folks who are listening and now want to follow up, find out more about you, find out more about the fund, where should they go?
1: Yeah, so uh, easy to follow me on Twitter, at Tyg Savage, um, see some of the things I'm thinking about. Uh, also easy to email me. You can just uh, hit me at Tyg at Revolution.com.
0: Amazing. Tyke! thank you so much for being on Product Time Radio.
1: Thank you for having me. Loved it.
0: Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you.
1: Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.